Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Let me get this straight. If I am doing my math correctly, I believe this may be the first 50-50 split Gen Z millennial edition of rational security no i'm a millennial do you consider yourself a millennial i'm a, like I'm right a young the millennial there. the cutoff is 1996 quinta is that a cultural oh. identification or a, or a literal identification <laughs> does that make me a geriatric millennial i think it might <laughs> perhaps no so this is this is how i think about it is that the dividing line between young and old millennials is people who were on the job market at the time of or about to be on the job market, the financial crisis. So I did not experience that. I was a little bit too young, which makes Ooh. me a young millennial. But that is a touchstone moment. I don't understand TikTok, which means that I can't be Gen Z. But do you know what Chugi is? And am I it? And is it a good thing <laughs> Actually, or a bad I, thing? I asked a, uh, a Gen Z acquaintance of mine to explain Chugi to me when a boomer acquaintance of mine asked me what it meant. So there you go. I'm bridging the generations. But what is it? You guys got to read the New York Times. Yeah, you got to explain this to me. <laughs> well, the Chugi is a fake. It's a fake delineation because you all only know of it because they wrote a New York Times article about it, which is the same reason why I know about it. I have literally no idea what the hell anyone is talking about. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security Live Free or Reason Hard. We are happy to be here today. This is Scott Anderson, a senior editor for Lawfare, among other hats. And I'm happy to be back here today with my friends, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And we are thrilled to be joined by our newest edition bringing out the youth brigade the youth and beauty brigade here on rational security 2.0 jacob schultz hello scott jacob the gen z schultz and quinta the maybe gen z jurassic no (laughs) i don't believe in generations but i am firmly not gen z (laughs) everybody gets to decide their generation i think it's fair however you gravitate it's more of a feeling i I identify as a millennial I identify strongly as Gen X, despite being about 15 years too young, I think. So that's understandable. I, I, I identify strongly as a late Victorian, but that's not been particularly useful for me. So, uh, Jacob, am I correct? This is your first time on Rational Security? First Rational Security appearance of all time. But have you actually listened to Rational Security before? I'll fess up and say I have listened. You know, I've, I, at this point, I've worked here for quite a while. It'd be a bit of a grave sin not to have. But, you know, my listening habits increased significantly since the revamp, Scott. That I can promise you. There you go. That's what we like to hear. Ladies and gentlemen, that was not coerced. That was entirely of its own volition, we swear. Uh, Well, today we are excited to be here with you to discuss a number of topics for the Are We Chuggy edition of (laughs) Rational Security (laughs) 2.0. First, from the Department of the End of the Republic, we will be discussing whether a recently revealed plan to manipulate the process for counting 2020 electoral votes in President Trump's favor should have us worried about 2024. Then we will be discussing a prisoner dilemma. What should we make of China's use of hostage diplomacy to secure the release of Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou? And finally, hitting unfriend. Is a federal court correct that Facebook has an obligation to share information on atrocities with international tribunals? Alan, let me turn it over to you for our first topic. So as part of the upcoming Woodward Costa book on the end of the Trump presidency, there is a pretty stunning revelation of a memo that was written by John Eastman, former dean of Chapman Law School in California and one of the uh, senior advisors to the Trump reelection campaign, uh, setting out a legal uh, theory or a, th- a theory of the legality of the vice president setting aside some of the quote unquote disputed electoral college votes. And in so doing, through a complicated process of 
throwing the election to the House and Senate, leading to Trump's victory. This memo has been roundly criticized by lawyers across the political spectrum, but it does show a pretty concerted effort on the part of Trump and his highest inner circle, not just to cast doubt on the legitimacy of the election, but to quite directly try to overturn it. And this raises real questions, I think, about what Trump or other Republicans might be willing to do in 2024. And then in in addition to this memo, Robert Kagan wrote a really provocative and powerful op-ed in the Washington Post that we'll link to in the show notes, putting forth his theory of the danger to democracy in 2024. Um, There's not a lot, I'd say, that's new in the argument, um, but it it does do a nice job of pulling together a lot of different concerns that I think many of us have been thinking about over the past few years and putting forth a really powerful argument for why in particular, the Republican Party can no longer be trusted to safeguard democracy, and that some of its more recent moves around control of state electoral commissions is a a sign that we should be very worried in 2024 that if Biden or whoever runs for the Democrats wins, uh, especially in a close election, the Republicans, whether led by Trump or someone else, won't abide by that, and we could have a real threat to American democracy. So I don't know, Quinta, scale of one to 10, one being you are not at all concerned, 10 being you will not be sleeping from now until election day in 2024. How concerned are you for the future of American democracy? I would give it like a 8.5, maybe. That's really high. Yeah, it's bad, man. I don't I I had really mixed feelings reading this Kagan essay, which I, I actually think is I have some disagreements with, but which I think is overall quite good because I was reading it and thinking I generally I agree with his diagnosis. Um I'm less sure than he is that Trump will run again in 2024, but you know, things are bad. The Republican Party at both the state and the federal level is increasingly digging in on rhetoric of a big lie. State Legislatures are increasingly implementing procedures that would allow chicanery with vote counting. Um, and it seems pretty clear that even if there isn't chicanery with vote counting, we we should expect Republicans to cry foul if they lose or even if they don't lose. But none of this is actually new. And and I don't I don't wanna, you know, be the person to say I was complaining about it first and therefore nobody else can because I don't think that's true. I mean, like the, the more people are alarmed about this, frankly, the better because I think it it really is a four alarm fire. But all of this, I would say, has been abundantly clear since the months immediately after the election when it became clear that Trump was not going to back away from the lie that the election was stolen. And once Republicans started really digging in on the idea that they needed to shore up state and local infrastructure in order to take control over vote counting. And it's also been abundantly clear since we got the results back from election night 2020 about the sort of the razor's edge that Congress stands on, that the midterms in 2022 are going to be a huge problem because Traditionally, the president's party does poorly in the midterms. Voters tend to, you know, become disillusioned and go the other way. And in this case, if the president's voters go for the Republican Party and against Biden, that's really bad because you end up with a Republican Congress and a Biden administration that can do very, very little. And that positions Biden poorly for re-election, or if he if say Kamala Harris decides to run in his stead. So all of this, I think, is extremely alarming. It's really, really bad. I have been alarmed by the lack of alarm about it, if I can put it that way. I think Congress is really, really dawdling on the kinds of reforms that in a perfect world I would want to see to, say, the Electoral Count Act, to presidential power, to any number of things um, that there's really a ticking clock on. And people just kind of seem to have moved along to, you know, the debt ceiling, which is important, but there's other stuff going on here. So color me glad that Kagan wrote this, but somewhat puzzled that it's taken everybody this long to get alarmed about it. 
Yeah, I think I generally agree with Quinta's take on this. You know, these are a lot of issues that we anticipated in the lead up to the 2020 election. None of them are particularly new, including in the Eastman memo. The East memo really is not revelatory, right? Like uh, I wrote a series of articles, a number of other people wrote lots and lots of articles saying here are all the different ways an accounting of electoral votes process could go wrong. And Eastman kind of seizes on a number of those, puts them together into a little bit of a package. And we should note, it's not super credible or plausible. Like it ends on this note, the actual memo, which is I think two pages long, ends on this note that says, oh, and you know, Larry Tribe once said this was on non-justiciable. That's my favorite uh, before part. Before Supreme Court. It's crazy. Like Larry there's, Tribe. There's so much Larry Tribe. Larry Tribe speaks for the Democrats. I'm going to make an admission against interest, as they say. We need fewer law professors involved in all of this. Like, we just don't need the creative- A great irony from our sole law professor panelist. I will 100% (laughs) say we need, like, less, you know, intellectual brilliance, quote unquote, around all of this stuff and more just common sense (laughs) on, on all sides. Well, yeah, it it is kind of interesting because it does show this sort of vibe that we saw come out um, recently in the debate about, you know, whether it's vaccination mandates and other other arguments about the role these outside legal figures are kind of playing. And they're playing this kind of politically divisive sort of figure. Larry Tribe, I think, is kind of the leader of those. But that's kind of a side issue. We'll save that for future rational security. In this particular case, you know, this argument that, oh, because some other guys on the left argued that it was politically non-justiciable a couple of years ago. I don't know if they did or not. That's what the memo asserted. I haven't gone back to fact check it, that somehow that's going to mean the court's going to side that way now, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, particularly if you actually notice the Supreme Court has a very much narrower view of it's non-justiciable than the Supreme Court did in 2001, from a political question doctrine standpoint, at least. So it really is not a super plausible document. That I don't find that revelatory. Robert Kagan, but what strikes me as motivating it, and what I do think is a little different from before, is that we are now basically through the legislative period for this first year of this Democratic Congress, right? This first session of this Congress. Yeah, we have a few months left. It's going to be entirely eaten up by the NDAA, various types of big consolidated omnibus bills, debt ceiling, reconciliation. Like we know what the agenda is going to be. Little things will slip in. A lot of stuff will get jammed into the NDAA and a few other omnibus bills like it always is. But no new bills are going to be forward and nothing seriously tackles these problems. And it looks like that the filibuster is going to prevent anything from seriously tackling this problem. So this article I see kind of as a broadside attack on, frankly, like people defending the filibuster and trying to break through. And it is notable that Robert Gagan, like somebody who's traditionally kind of right of center, is kind of coming out, decidedly right of center, I guess, coming out saying this uh, is pretty notable. Even if they're not new arguments, his own personality brings some gravitas to it that I think is notable. As to how afraid we should be, I give it like a 6.5 to a 7. Because I think they are concerning. I think it's a unique historical moment. And there are some areas where we could definitely see reforms step in. But I'm also not convinced that a lot of these machinations are going to be enough to fully swing elections in very decisive directions. The real danger point is when they're extremely close elections. and when, But when elections are extremely close, like that means that they're politically, you know, closely bored, but that there's a strong part of the country that favors it one particular way or another. That's not a long-term recipe for success. That might be a short-term way to swing a particular outcome in an election, but that often leads to backswing and democratic forces and doesn't undermine the whole democratic system so much as just tweak the outcome in certain ways. That's problematic, but I don't know if it's destructive to the whole system. So I don't know. I'm, I'm not quite as concerned as Quinta, although I do, do agree this is a moment that these issues warrant some attention. Is, is the scale a log scale? Jacob, what is your number? I would say, I don't know, maybe between Scott and Quinta. I I think like- I I need a number. No, no, no. I need a number. need a number. Give me me a number. I'll go 7.2. Go $1, Bob. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're not not playing prices right rules though. Just so you know. Yeah. I mean, so I think I agree with different parts of what Scott and Quinta said. And I do think like it can't be underestimated- the extent to which the stuff that Kagan is talking about is probably contingent on Trump running, which seems like a a pretty enormous assumption, right? Like, I think there's somewhat of a tendency among people who look at what happened in 2020 and, and sort of look at certain components of Trumpism to downplay the extent to which Trump the person is like the key ingredient for a lot of a lot of that stuff happening. And again, like, who knows whether he's going to run again? To me, the, the part linking the Kagan piece with the Eastman memo that is maybe the most concerning. And this is, you know, this is something that Quinta spends a lot of time thinking about is that there's 
there's so much stuff that's going to come out about what happened in 2020. And there's so many different pieces that we don't yet know. And, you know, one day we get this Eastman memo and like, as different congressional committees continue their investigations, we'll get more and more information. And I, I think like the, the problem is just like, there's so much bad stuff that happened in 2020 and to avoid misdoings in 2024 there there's a certain imperative to know exactly what happened and to have a sense of who the actors were that were responsible for that and I, I sort of worry that because of the ad hoc way that you know we just get hit with this Eastman memo and it, and as like litigation unfolds in the Dominion cases we'll get more information and different congressional committees will get different pieces of information right there's like a fundamental struggle to even account for what actually happened in 2020 before we you know move on to thinking about 2024. So I am going to be more optimistic than all of you. And I'm going to say I'm at a 3.872. Oh, come on. No, no you no, don't get is, to introduce my... two more significant digits. I don't, I don't get to go into the thousandth. So the sig I, figs I... here, Alan. Come on. <laughs> is that a Gen Z thing? What is sig, what is sig figs? You guys just don't remember chemistry. Tenth, it's 10th yeah, grade on, chemistry. Man. High school chemistry. 10th grade chemistry is what it is. It was 10 years further back for me than the rest of you. <laughs> yeah, this is why Scott became a lawyer. Um, so I will say, I, I think it depends a lot on what is the this that we are concerned about. So I, I think if what you're asking, if the question is in 2024, do we have the danger of a very messy process? Will we have the danger of a lot of claims of election fraud? Might we have some violence? Might we have violence before that or after that? I think the potential for that is actually quite high. So I'll, I'll go seven or eight, something like that. But if the question is, are we about to see the collapse of democracy in this country, you know, whether total or something like the slide into the term is competitive authoritarianism, is what the political scientists call, you know, contemporary Hungary, let's say, because the Republican Party has no longer just no longer believes in a kind of a two-party democracy. I think that's much less likely for a number of reasons. You know, first, I think that just as Jacob points out that a lot depends on whether or not Donald Trump will be the Republican presidential nominee, a lot also depends on the fact that there will be a Democrat in the White House. And so a lot of elite cues, a lot of things that would worry me a lot more if it was Trump worry me a lot less just given that the national stage, the national conversation, elite media, just all of this will be run by a Democrat and who will be in a position to work with key members of Congress to ensure that there is a appropriate transition of, of power. So I think I think part of it is part of it is that I think another part of it is that we appropriately worry in this country about right wing extremism as we should. But I think that sometimes lets us forget that there is a huge, I don't want to say left wing, but a huge kind of small d democratic power base in this country that is far more motivated, energized, funded, resourced, and important, frankly, than the kind of the far right, right? You know, in other countries, you sometimes have things, and this happens in France from time to time, you know, a general strike where the entire country <laughs> comes out and says, nope, we're done. Happens we're not doing this anymore. Happens all the time. We're not doing this anymore. We are upset. We don't see a lot of that in the United States. But I think if there were to be a attempted stolen election, you know, if the Democrats won fairly and squarely, right, um, and there was an attempted stolen election, I think that's what you would see. And I think given the importance of the cities, given the almost total domination of elite media. Obviously, there's Fox News, and that's its own thing, right? You know, given the professionalization of the US military, I think if there really was this sort of hinge point in American democracy, all the power actually shifts is in the direction of the sort of small d democratic forces. Now, again, it would be ugly, and people would die. And that would be a huge, huge, huge problem. But you know, what, we're, what we have on the table, right, is the end of American democracy. And that I am not that concerned about. And I think that's an important distinction to draw. Like, I'm not trying to duck the issue here, but that is my that is my considered view. What this makes me think of is what Jack Goldsmith described during the Trump administration as libertarian panic, which I think has more of a negative ring to it than Jack actually meant, or at least how I interpreted it. So what he meant by that is that there are a lot of things that Trump did that people flipped out about, to use a technical term, but ended up not being so bad. 
And that lets some people say, well, it turns out it wasn't so bad, so you shouldn't have worried. But another way to view that is he wasn't able to get away with whatever it was he was trying because perhaps everybody freaked out. And so this sort of possibly exaggerated concern over threats to the stability of democracy in the United States in the end, may be exaggerated, but has a salutary effect insofar as it helps protect American democracy against those threats. So you can kind of, you can get um, quite involved here. And, you know, I don't know to what extent I'm responding out of libertarian panic and to what extent I'm actually worried that something really bad could happen. But I do think of that example, like, I, I feel like the the risk of overstating the danger here is so much less than the risk of understating it that I'm comfortable with my 8.5. I will say, I think one of the points that I have taken comfort out of this scenario this year past the 2020 election is the fact that all of these scenarios are still contingent on Donald Trump himself running an older gentleman who will not be in a position to run if he's able to run 2024 for that much longer of American history. Because no one seems to, despite the like really, really aggressive effort in the months after the November election in 2020 that contributed in substantial part to the January 6th event and, you know, a lot of politics in between of people to seize that fire, capture that lightning in a bottle and somehow become the new Donald Trump force to get whatever power he can to motivate voters, new voters out in the Republican primary and capture and seize it. Nobody really seems to have inherited that mantle very effectively. I I really don't know if anyone has, certainly independent of Trump himself. And so, you know, in that regard, hopefully that means that this is really something tied up with this individual, this unique bundle of characteristics, this unique historical moment. That's kind of how I tend to think about, like, you know, more demagoguery type figures in in history. Now, maybe that's wrong. Maybe they'll be, this will become the basis of a movement and will be handed off to a leader and leaders who can continue it forward in a way that's going to have longer reaching political effects precisely because it will be such a recurring aspect of our political system. But I'm I'm not sure that is that's the case. I don't see much evidence for it so far. And in my mind, that that does mean that there may be some limited parameters about some of the risks and concerns here. We'll have to wait and see. Speaking of waiting and seeing, that's that's a really bad segue. We don't have to announce every bad segue because they're all <laughs> terrible. You just it just it goes without saying. We're getting a lot of good Twitter response on the forced segue. So I think, Quinta, I think you should just only do forced segues. Okay. Speaking of waiting and seeing, there was some interesting news this week out of China and Canada. So listeners may have seen that the two Michaels, that's Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver, two Canadian citizens who have been held in detention by China for quite some time now, were finally released and headed back to Canada. And there are some lovely pictures of them reuniting with their families. Of course, you don't get anything free in this world. And so they were uh, released in exchange, it seems, for Meng Wanzhou, who is uh, executive at the Chinese telecommunications company Huawei, who had been detained in the lap of luxury, it's worth noting, in Canada after she was arrested in 2018 there at the request of the United States, which indicted Meng along with the company Huawei on a variety of charges. So I think this is a, it's a pretty interesting sort of tangle of issues. I mean, there's the question of, should the United States have gone along with this, which it presumably did insofar as the Justice Department allowed Meng to sort of go free without prosecuting her? What's the future of the China-Canada relationship, given that Canada has finally gotten the two Michaels back? And I think there's some really interesting questions about the relationship between the White House and the Justice Department here in terms of who made the decision to allow Meng to go. So lots, lots to discuss. But Alan, I think you wanted to ask me a question about it. Yeah, so I, I am still kind of confused about some of the basic facts. So there's there's a great Wall Street Journal article that we'll link to that goes into the details of this. And one thing that I could not, I didn't quite understand is the, the journal article, which is based on lots of reporting and interviews in, inside the government and DOJ, suggests very strongly that DOJ was just prosecuting this case, like would prosecute any other case. And it just decided at some point that it was not worth continuing to try to extradite this individual from Canada because that would take a long time and it could take years. And even once they got her here, the actual jail term isn't that 
big for offenses like this. So instead, they could just get her to admit to certain facts, and that would be enough. And then when DOJ told the State Department this, the State Department told China this, and China said, well, in that case, let's throw you guys some Canadians as a thank you. Yeah, they, they came up with it totally on their own. Yeah, it, exactly. So, so, and obviously that just sounds very weird, right? It seems much more likely that there was some sort of agreement here. But that, of course, would raise questions of whether or not there was interference, quote unquote, from the White House and DOJ's internal affairs. And that's not at least what the reporting I've read suggests. So just you know, before we get into this question of is it good or bad to have, quote unquote, hostage exchanges, how sure are we that this was, in fact, an example of that? And not just DOJ just got tired of this and kind of It's a up. great question. It's a great question. And I don't think it's clear from the reporting. I mean, it's also worth noting on the Canadian side, there's been some reporting from Canadian experts saying that they were really surprised that China let the two Michaels back into Canada right away, that they had expected that Canada would let Meng back into China, and then China would wait a little bit to kind of give themselves a fig leaf of, you know, pretending that there was some criminal process that had been satisfied, you know, some kind of box checking exercise, and then let Kovrig and Spaver back into Canada to kind of maintain plausible deniability that this was something other than a bare prisoner swap. I agree that it seems a little fortuitous that everybody just kind of had the same idea at the same time without anybody being, uh, you know, pointed in any direction. The, the journal article has a hilarious line that says, Justice Department officials said they faced no pressure to resolve the case on any particular terms, even as the State Department and Canadian officials discussed the potential ramifications of a resolution. So, I mean, the like, lady doth really? protest too much. And and before before I turn it over to, to Scott and Jacob, because I'm curious what they think, I did find this interesting as, you know, if this happened under the Trump administration, people might have been running around with their hair on fire saying this is political interference in the process of justice. You know, how can this stand? But I do think it's interesting that under Biden, this sort of happened and there are disagreements about it on a policy matter. But I don't think anyone's suggesting that it was improper for the White House to have been involved. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I the, In prepping to come on with you guys, I was listening to some of the stuff that was on Lawfare and, and in other outlets in, in connection with um, the original arrest. And, and the thing that came up over and over and over again was Trump's personal role in the initial arrest and Trump's public statements surrounding the, the initial arrest. So I'll read you what he said in 2018. A reporter asked him, if he would be willing to intervene in Meng's case, if it would help secure a trade deal with China or to aid U.S. interests. And he said, if I think it's good for the country, if I think it's good for it will certainly be the largest trade deal ever made, I would certainly intervene if I thought it was necessary. And and I think like there's an interesting question, comparative question of of what we what we make of, of Trump saying something like this versus what we make of the Biden administration's posture on these issues, right? And Trump obviously ham-handedly says these things in public and you know he he conditions public response unthinkingly driven by his own personal motivations but there's a whole series of interesting questions here about you know what type of involvement ought you know the, the president to have in these types of questions and i think again i i do wonder how much are the way that we think about these things is conditioned by the person of trump versus the person of biden so you know, I, I think we need to first take a step back here and clarify the difference between a White House involvement versus other agency interests or equities potentially in a prosecution. Speaking decision. up for the State Department. Exactly. Uh, you know, the truth is like the Department of Justice is heavily insulated from a number of other interests when it comes to this kind of criminal justice decisions, but not entirely. There's an interagency process. Agencies still talk to each other. And importantly, like Justice Department officials are made aware of how Justice Department decisions fit into the broader nexus of interests of the United States government. So I, I'm not surprised to find out that senior Justice Department officials were aware that like, man, this case is a problem. They could just read the newspaper to know that, of course, but the State Department's probably giving them a little more granular <laughs> detail. It might be giving feedback saying, well, based on our talks, we kind of think the Canadians might be okay with this. We kind of think the Chinese may be okay with this and give us a resolution. We're not saying that's what you got to do because you have this person you need to prosecute, but you don't need the White House to necessarily get involved to have these sorts of resolutions. And in a lot of cases, and particularly in an era where White House involvement with the Justice Department is subject to scrutiny, and I think the Biden administration is very, very aware of that, as is Attorney General Garland, I'd be a little surprised if you saw much like open involvement, maybe discussed at 
DPCs, interagency meetings, now security council meetings. But I, I don't think you need that to actually get to this resolution here. This is a situation that had gone on for a thousand days and wasn't headed towards any sort of resolution. So I don't think you need to get there. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're right. But I, I do think to Jacob's point, it is useful to consider what would happen if the same fact pattern had occurred in 2018 or 2019, right? I, I think we would all be saying, you know, just the very fact that anyone from Trump's State Department would talk to Trump's Justice Department and, um, you know, this would ever come up in a Trump you know, deputies committee meeting or principals committee meeting, right? It's just, it shows the kind of pervasive politicization of the whole Trump apparatus, right? And I think, just to be clear, I think that would have been a fair critique at the time. And I don't think it's a fair critique now, right? Which raises the question, is this just all hypocrisy, right? Is it just the fact that all this endless talk about norms is just when the person you don't like is in the White House? And I think in a sense, the answer is yes, but there's a, a actually a defensible reason for that, which is that whether we like it or not, our current constitutional and separation of power system is structured in such a way that the personality, character traits, motivation, virtues, vices, however you want to call it, of the occupant of the White House is really, really important. And, you know, as much as it is the job of lawyers and and executive branch watchers to try to come up with president-neutral rules of behavior, right, especially when it comes to the president and especially when it comes to these very sensitive issues of foreign relations where there's just very little predictability and sometimes you have to act very quickly and God knows what equities might or might not be at stake. You know, the buck stops here, right? The buck stops with the president. And so, you know, I I do think it's important to remember that the norms that we're talking about are not just norms about against acting in a particular way, right? It's not just a norm against ever, quote unquote, interfering in the Justice Department. It's a norm against doing so corruptly, right? And I'm willing to say that people across the political spectrum who are nevertheless decent and arguing in good faith can recognize that Trump often acted corruptly, and that is not the case with Biden, nor would that be the case with Mitt Romney or Marco Rubio, for example, right? And I think this is the important issue here. So, you know, this question about the extent of DOJ independence, I think is an interesting one. It's not, to me, it's like not as clearly implicated by this case as a lot of other policy questions. I think it's worth spending some time thinking about those broader ones. And that a lot of that has to do with China, right? And China's position in the world. I think it's really interesting that a lot of people jumped at this and said immediately, oh, this is a big giveaway to China, a big win for China for securing this. Because I'm not sure that's true. I mean, this is probably China winning the battle, right? To some extent, this is the only outcome that they've been working towards. It was, it was what their stated objective was. That's certainly true. But, you know, to me, it has a lot of looks of a very Pyrrhic victory on their part. Um, relationship with Canada is at an all-time low. Relationship with the United States and a lot of U.S. allies are at an all-time low. This story has really fed into, I think, a lot, a lot much broader narrative about China being a rogue actor on the international scene, breaking down norms, leveraging its new power. That has led to lots of balancing among a lot of U.S. allies uh, and other states as well, and a kind of new relationship popping up to respond to that Chinese effect. And in that sense, that might help explain some of the Chinese efforts to get itself out quickly from this sort of scenario to make clear this was an exceptional scenario. This is something we're going to do. Take these guys back and we're done. China's put itself in a really difficult position by doing this. And over like a pretty minor case, it's not 100% clear to me that this person was really worth all of this on a bilateral policy basis. But China put itself in this position by acting very aggressively, taking kind of like dramatic action and then locking itself in. So I think those are much kind of more interesting takeaways there. And I, I think this is signs that Chinese China's behavior, kind of we talked about last week uh, in regard to AUKUS agreement, like is beginning to come back and bite it a bit. And maybe it's even China beginning to recognize that and say, oh, man, we got to start reining it in a little bit. But like, I kind of doubt that based on some of their other behavior in other areas. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Scott, I think to your to your point too, like the starting place of of what got us here is not, I wouldn't imagine is a is a place that like China sees as particularly intriguing or or something to to be desired, which is that you know the U.S. the U.S. Department of Justice indicted the CFO of a massive Chinese company for her personal involvement in you know alleged bank fraud, right? And if you see what's happening here as part of a broader you know broader campaign against Chinese tech companies and Huawei in particular, or Huawei and ZT in particular, right? This is not something that happens a lot, right? Like the way that the United States approached the ZT situation was for the Commerce Department to use civil action to you know, get ZT out. And the difference between a Commerce Department you know, ban on ZT versus a criminal indictment of the CFO of a massive and incredibly geostrategically important Chinese company seems to me like a starting place that they would in most circumstances, probably like to avoid being in in the first place. And I should say before we move on that the, as far as I know, the criminal process against the company Huawei is continuing despite the deferred prosecution agreement against Meng. So speaking about the prosecution of technology companies, let's move on to our third topic, Facebook. This past week, a federal magistrate judge issued a ruling holding that Facebook has an obligation to share information information relating to genocide against Rohingya in Myanmar, which it had previously claimed was protected by U.S. law and prevented from disclosure by U.S. law, was in fact not protected by that federal law, the Stored Communications Act, and that Facebook had an obligation to hand it over to the government of Gambia that is pursuing a lawsuit against Myanmar before the International Court of Justice over said genocide. This ruling comes on the back of a long investigation by the Wall Street Journal and frankly, like a long media narrative that's extended for a number of years now, raising a lot of questions about social responsibility of Facebook as a company, to what extent it lives up to its own stated values, and to what extent it at times has outright ignored when even its own employees or its own consumers raise major concerns about certain types of behavior in this kind of general line. I think that the place to start with all this, though, is with this legal opinion, because it's notable both for its interpretation of the statute and then also for some of the rhetoric around Facebook, its social role, and kind of even its moral suasion of some of its arguments, to borrow one of the statements by the magistrate judge in the opinion. Alan, let me turn to you first on that to give us a little overview of the decision. Sure. So the law at question is the Stored Communications Act, which is the federal law that governs government access to most kinds of stored electronic and digital data, and in particular, restricts the ability of technology companies to hand over data on their users to other parties subject to certain exceptions. And um, what's interesting about the reasoning of this case was that the court did not find that one of these exceptions applied. What the court found was that the Stored Communications Act itself did not apply at all to this data because Facebook had deleted the accounts of the, uh, I think in this case, it was government officials in question who were suspected of being involved in this, in this you know, human rights abuse activity. And because they had deleted the accounts, they were no longer, according to the judge, Facebook was no longer keeping the data for the purposes of these customers. And therefore, under its reading of the Stored Communications Act, the Stored Communications Act just doesn't apply at all. And as Oren Kerr, who's a law professor at UC Berkeley and who is kind of the leading expert on all things digital evidence related, points out, this is both a kind of odd reading of the statute itself, but it also has remarkably broad and quite troubling consequences because it undermines the whole point of the Stored Communications Act, which is that the decision of who gets your data supposed to belong primarily with you, unless there is, for example, 
proper U.S. government legal process. But if a company can undermine those protections just by deleting your account, which, as we all know, they can do for any reason at any time under their terms of service, then these protections become much, much less meaningful. So while I am all in favor of investigating the Rohingya genocide and social media and Facebook's culpability towards it, I do think that this decision is quite troubling um, in its kind of evisceration of this fundamental statute. And, And also, Scott, to your point about how the decision was written, it also has some kind of weird rhetoric here. It begins with this strange sentence, I come to praise Facebook, not to bury it. I mean, which is all nicely elusive. I still actually am not sure what exactly that illusion is supposed to be accomplishing, given the rest of the opinion. And then there are these kind of weird snarky comments about how, quote unquote, ironic it is that Facebook is trying to to uphold user privacy, which kind of makes sense. I mean, it is in some ways ironic, but also who cares? That's not the question here. I, I, I think there's just a larger lesson from this case, which is that when just which is that judges like the rest of us writers have to learn to kill their darlings <laughs> right when you write when you're a judge and you write something that makes you smile that is great save it for your biographer and then delete it well one fact i think is worth bearing in mind here is that the judge in the sia farki uh hopefully hopefully i'm saying that right is actually a pretty newly minted magistrate judge he was actually i think until just last year I mean, late last year a pretty senior prosecutor in the u.s attorney's office here in dc on national security issues has been involved with a lot of stuff law firms covered over the years but this is probably his first chance to write an opinion he knew a lot of people were going to read so I, that does inevitably kind of enter a little bit into uh some editing decisions here i think Real flourish of the pen. Like that makes the whole thing a little more embarrassing, I have to say. Yes. So I will say I found this really interesting, particularly because, as Scott noted, this both is related to a sort of long-running Facebook scandal. There's been writing and reporting about Facebook's role in potentially enabling violence against the Rohingya in uh, Myanmar for many years now. But also the Wall Street Journal is has basically made for a really tough week or so for Facebook. Facebook is coming off a series of really brutal reporting from the journal on the basis of internal documents from Facebook researchers essentially saying, hey, our platform is doing some really bad stuff. Here's some data about that bad stuff. Maybe we should stop doing it. And then Mark Zuckerberg says, so in comparison, I mean, he literally, the, we, he literally made that exact sound just so people know yeah, there's audio. Exactly. That's the that's exact, the that's actually, we just spliced in the, <laughs> the audio there. That squeak. So, right. So <laughs> clearly, you know, this is not a good moment in the zeitgeist for Facebook. And I think you see that very much in, in the decision itself. And I will say as speaking, just as someone who's been writing for, for a while now on a project about sort of changing views of technology and social media platforms in the United United States after the 2016 election and how that sort of changed opinions on technology governance. It's really striking to see kind of such a clear example in the in the form of this opinion. But I think I worry that as Alan points out, and I think as Oren made uh, this point on Twitter very ably, there's a real Pandora's box element here. Um, and you, I mean, you can come up with a million scenarios in which this creates problems that I'm sure we can come up, we can talk through some of those hypotheticals. But what I came away thinking was just that, look, Facebook, it's a company with an enormous amount of problems. It would have a lot of those problems, even if it were trying to address them in good faith. And to be clear, I think many people within the company are. It is also true that the company's leadership has at some points, a negative interest in addressing those problems in good faith or otherwise. And those are real issues. And at the same time, the problem is that this machine is so vast and so fiddly that if you sort of take a really broad swipe at it, all sorts of consequences are going to come down the pike that you don't even think about. And so this kind of rhetoric, you know, the the sort of really broad view of what the Stored Communications Act doesn't cover, this weird swipe at Facebook over, haha, how ironic that they're trying to protect privacy. I mean, it just strikes me as a great... Well, it's it's a good example, but a a bad example at the same time of what sort of 
knee-jerk, if merited, opposition to Facebook can engender. And I do worry, even as someone who is not a fan of Facebook, about what that's going to lead to. Yeah. I mean, one way I think to think about Quinta's point is it's it's a sort of like a fundamental misapprehension of what the incentive structures are here, right? So part of the judge's opinion, and I'm pulling from Oren's excellent Twitter thread, which has been mentioned many times, is that you know if a provider moderates content, all private messages and emails can be freely disclosed and they're no longer private. And you know, from a purely practical standpoint, that seems to me to really, on a fundamental level, overlook what we might want Facebook to be actually doing, which is, on the one hand, moderating content. Like, you, It is not an ideal universe that Facebook elects to not intervene on behalf of posts pertaining to the you know genocide of Myanmar for reasons of the Stored Communications Act. Whether or not they would do that, who knows. But and it's also a fundamental misapprehension, the fact that it is a good thing for Facebook to act, even if they're not acting completely or not always acting consistently, in ways that protect user privacy, right? These are things that you would want Facebook to be doing. And the strict legal issues aside, right, to me, it, it's just really overlooking what the type of, you know, scaffolding that you want to set up in terms of incentives are. And I, I think there's a way, too, in which this relates to the the Facebook files reporting and, and the way that that got received in that there's this universal, very strong negative reaction, most of which almost all of which extremely well-deserved, but there's also a bit of not fully thinking through what you are mad at and what you are mad at sort of conditions the way that Facebook behaves, right? Like if you're mad about the specific things that have come out, most of these things we already knew, right? That we already knew that Facebook was very bad, already knew all that stuff. The thing that you ought to be mad at is that they did the research and then elected to do nothing about it, right? It it's really, you know, you want to think through like, what are you mad at them for doing the research? Probably not, right? And it's the same thing in the case of this opinion, right? Like Facebook's sin here from a you know normative sense is probably not that they elected to moderate content, but when you sort of get into the business of of criticizing and of, of making laws, right? You, you need to think through what are you incentivizing and what are you disincentivizing? And I think it's also important to note that, you know, you can imagine if, if this opinion is allowed to stand and if Facebook doesn't appeal it, a world where Facebook has an incentive to say moderate, but just purge all of the data, yep. which in cases like this could be an actual problem. Like there is a lot of really interesting scholarship on the necessity of platforms holding on to data of you know war crimes, violence, so it can be used in investigations and to document atrocities. And if the incentive is platforms should not only moderate this, but just wipe the data so that it, it can't be handed over um, because of privacy concerns, I think that's really a net loss here. But I think this all kind of leads to the natural question of, you know, what would a better regime kind of look like here? Because there's obviously some sort of mismatch between incentives and the desires. And it seems like very legitimate desires of people saying, well, these are criminal activities, potentially international legal law violations, potentially domestic law violations overseas for information that that isn't as readily accessible here. Yeah. So, so there, there is an actual answer to this. It's the Cloud Act which is a law passed several years ago that creates a mechanism by which foreign countries can directly serve process for digital information on US-based companies without the Sword Communications Act getting in the way. Now, the problem is that other than the UK, there are no countries that can actually do this yet. And it's a very long process to get this set up. But I do think the answer has to be something like that, right? And over time, we should expect more and more countries to enter into these Cloud Act agreements with the United States. Now, I don't know if Gambia, which is the country that requested this data, would ever be would ever be able to enter into one of these agreements with the U.S. The standards for rule of law and human rights—it's all—it's very elaborate, and I, I I just don't know the details about Gambia to be clear. Maybe Gambia would, would be fine here. But one can imagine several years from now, enough countries would have these agreements that they could either on their own behalf, either for themselves or on the behalf of some international tribunal or body that is looking into this genocide, they could serve process on Facebook. And I think that has to be the answer. Um, but what cannot be the answer is to essentially eviscerate the Stored Communications Act, because in this situation, that is the simplest way of getting this information out about Facebook's role in the Rohingya genocide. 
Can I just ask, Ellen, whether you're, I mean, I assume Facebook is going to appeal this. Do you expect that it will stand on appeal or be overturned? I, I think it'll almost certainly be overturned. I, I think this is a magistrate judge who has not put forward a particularly convincing reading of the statute. And and I think especially as folks have time to think through the policy, the broader legal and policy implications of this, I would be very surprised if the district court adopted this. And I'd be very, very surprised if if the district court adopted this, the Second Circuit adopted it as well. But, you know, weirder things have happened. I, I think my question is, is, you know, the Cloud Act and those sorts of procedures are there in part to extend these protections over cases and preserve them while still providing an outlet in cases where there's genuine ambiguity as to like the nature of the underlying data, right? Like this is something where it is the information that a user has in their email account. This user may be alleged of certain criminal acts, but we don't really know. We're going to go through sort of, you know, warrant process, some sort of vague equivalent set up by the Cloud Act through these very rigorous procedures that, as you noted, are like severely underdeveloped. If those ever get developed, maybe that's kind of a solution, but it also sets up this really high barrier, right? Because you could see all sorts of like civil suits potentially pursuing around lots of criminal activity online where people would want access to this. People posting information about uh, whether it's like child abuse or you know something that borders on child pornography or evidence related to all sorts of legal claims that are really unlikely to become the subject, even if they legally might be. And in a lot of cases, I think they legally probably wouldn't be. The sorts of proceedings that Cloud Act is supposed to facilitate there, including also international accountability, right? Which I'm not sure exactly how that intersects with the Cloud Act framework. Maybe it's covered. I, I'm not 100 sure it is, but I but I don't know. I'm not an expert in this area. The question I have, I guess, is like, is there a way to which you could carve out? these protections to say that certain information for which there's a strong basis for believing isn't entitled to these heightened levels of protections or isn't entitled to only a certain lower level of protection. The trick is like determining that line and who decides that line because there's liability for the company if it's the decider. But if it has an incentive to say no in any sort of gray area case, we're, we're going to push back. But in the areas where it's clearly true, we don't see this as applying. Congress has said we're not obligated to protect this and we can voluntarily disclose it. And so we shall. I'm not sure that's not a suboptimal opinion. The one thing it would do would be it would put on notice users who are engaging in quasi or seriously criminal activity, clearly criminal activity, that if they do this stuff on Facebook, Facebook is going to pull it down and then hand it over voluntarily in these cases to authorities on another part. That may be a good solution, though, for Facebook, who probably doesn't want to have to deal with these users in these cases. It causes legal headaches for them, might scare them off the platform. And it's not necessarily a bad answer from an accountability perspective either. So I'm, I'm curious what the counter pressure is there. You know, like I understand the, the, the concern about providing maximal protection for users in, in ambiguous cases, but where there's just like clearly information has already been determined by Facebook to be criminal. Is it necessary to run it through this very onerous process that's supposed to apply universally to any sort of user like you and me if we were to be accused of a crime? Look, may maybe not. And to be clear, the Stored Communications Act already has as one of its exceptions that a company can voluntarily share information with the U.S. government in cases of emergency or to prevent imminent loss of life, that sort of thing. Um, that doesn't apply to international, to foreign governments, which is kind of part of the, the trick here. Now, if Congress wants to extend that, if Congress wants to write a new exception, all of that's totally fine. But that's just very different than what's happening in this case, where the judge is saying to fix this specific problem, which is not a trivial problem, totally, but it is a specific problem, I'm going to essentially eviscerate the entirety of the Stored Communications Act. And I think what people are reacting to, at least what I'm reacting to, is the, let's call it disproportionate legal response here on the part of the magistrate judge. To be fair, the, I'm going to fix this very specific problem by eviscerating this underlying legal structure on which so much depends is pretty much Congress's approach to Section 230 right now. So, you know, maybe there's a through line there. Well, we'll have to leave the conversation there because it is time for us to turn to our regular tradition of object lessons. Quinta, why don't you get us started? I am going to use as my object lesson something that brings me lightness and joy in this pretty bleak time, which is a television show called The Other Two, which I think is undersung and deserves more love. Um, it was on, I think, Showtime or something. Now it's on HBO. It is about the two adult siblings of a tween who suddenly becomes a famous pop star. And it is delightful. It just wrapped its second season. I have been uh, re-watching the first season and watching season two. And it's just, it's fun and light and you don't have to think too hard about it. And it is genuinely extremely funny. 
And I, I think that, you know, we all need a little more joy in our lives. So highly recommend the other two. So Quinta has something that brings her sweetness and light. And I have something that brings me sleepiness and carbs, which I think is even better. And that is I have discovered a new and superior pasta shape. Come at me, y'all. Uh, it is cascatelli, which is, I understand, Italian for little waterfall. It is uh, made by a artisanal hipster pasta company called Sfolini in New York. And it is the brainchild of the excellent, excellent food podcaster, Dan Pashman of The Sporkful, which is a tremendously entertaining podcast. Not as entertaining as Rational Security, obviously, but still quite entertaining. Give it a listen. And he embarked on this multi-year journey to design a new pasta shape, which is bold, given that you'd think after so many years, all the good pasta shapes have been designed. And yet, I have to say that his creation, Cascatelli, which is sort of like a cross between Bucatini and, and Farfalle and like a little Radiatore, it's really good. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's so good. I bought it as a, as a surprise for my wife um, because there was a five-month delay on it. My wife has apparently now bought 18 more boxes so that we never have to be without it. And it is... Within the genre of short pasta, the only pasta I ever, ever want to eat again. We are not sponsored by Cascatelli, though if you're listening, I wouldn't mind being sponsored by Cascatelli. No free ads. It's so good. It's a perfectly trapped sauce. Like it's, we eat it with, with, we have this bolognese sauce we're really proud of, and it just kind of perfectly captures sauce. It's chewy. It's, it's really good. There's a great essay on the uh, entertainment blog Dirt by Kyle Chaco, who's a culture critic, about pasta as content, which is specifically <laughs> about Cascatelli. And I would direct listeners toward that. I'm a Cascatelli stan. I'm proud of it. This is a sort of object lesson where I regret podcasts are an audio medium, because the thing you don't understand about this pasta is when you look at it, it is visually looks like something to like designed by H.R. Giger, and uh, that it has these kind of like vicious spine-like protuberances and it kind of looks like you know something you ripped out of like a small mammal's back um to use i like get a little worried when i eat it that it's gonna like lay its young in my abdomen and eat their way back out of it it is it'd be worth it just to be clear that would be worth it scott given how tasty it is and i also just want to say something that i think is really worth talking about is its cooking time is 13 to 17 minutes which is substantially longer than most pasta and that tells you the that's boldness. too long man no the boldness of these creators to provide such a beefy pasta shape that takes 13 minutes to get to al dente they're telling you something they are proud of their pasta and so am i alan you've just succumbed to to pasta sciencism this is all fake <laughs> this is meaningless i will say as a, a fan of the sportful podcast and a frequent pasta maker myself uh, i support the the motivation behind it but we're going to work on that visual design on one i don't think it's quite there yet uh sportful so come at us with round two at some point for my object lesson, I want to follow up on the fact that the last few episodes we've been talking about a lot to and about a number of people who do not listen to Rational Security, but I met three people at my brother-in-law's wedding this weekend who do listen to Rational Security. And that is, not coincidentally, my mother-in-law, Betty, uh, and her good friends, Jean and Karen. So I wanted to say hello to Betty, Jean, and Karen. Thank you all so much for listening. And uh, it is probably not a coincidence that one of them is my mother-in-law, but Regardless, I'm glad to have the support from somewhere in my family if my wife isn't going to back me up on the rational security listening front. I will also say, I'll put in a pledge inspired inspired by Alan, I will put in a plug for my own preferred wonderful pasta shape that embraces the both the flavor, the sauce grabbing, the aesthetic appeal uh, that beats a little bit, I think, the new pasta format, and also has embraces the badass appearance of it by embracing an equally badass name. Uh, and that is called Strozapretti or priest stranglers in Italian, which is a phenomenal short pasta that you should try before you start going to these new wave alternatives. I highly recommend- Priest stranglers? Priest stranglers. It is a, I think, R-rated pasta. Hand-rolled. It's amazing. Supper, a restaurant in Alphabet City, one of my favorite restaurants in the world, serves it. It is one of their main, main kind of flagship items, and it is delicious and fantastic. So strongly recommend that for embracing, if nothing else, it's inner savage, unlike this new final pasta that Alan is rolling out. With that, Jacob, we'll turn to you to close us out. So my object lesson is a little bit less wholesome than Scott's, but nonetheless, very funny. So 
I, I saw that Natalie last week brought some French flavor to to the object lesson realm, and I'm going to continue that here, although maybe in slightly less good spirits. And my object lesson is an unbelievable video of the president of France walking through a food festival of of some sort in Lyon, where he was promoting French gastronomy. And as he was walking through, was the recipient of an egg thrown at his left shoulder. And the egg, in a miraculous feat of gastronomy that rivals Alan's beloved pasta, bounces off his shoulder and doesn't break. Now, I'm, I'm not really sure how that worked, but what I am sure is that this, these videos, this is a genre of, of French political content, which is hollowed. So earlier in the summer, there's an amazing video of Macron getting slapped across the face while at a, another public event. And there's there's an, a very famous clip from maybe like 2008 of Sarkozy telling a farmer basically to get lost, asshole, in return for not shaking his hand. So it, it's a true addition to a, a canon of amazing political content. We need more of that in the U.S. Yeah, I feel like French presidential TikTok is just like unrivaled. We need to get get into this as a genre. Yes, yes. Well, until we can, that unfortunately brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0, like its fourth father, is a production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com, where you'll find liner notes for this episode, as well as links to the articles and object lessons we discussed. You can also purchase Rational Security swag at lawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits, including a committed ad-free feed for this specific podcast you are listening to right now today. Please do follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. And whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review and hit that share button and pass it along to your loved ones. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo. And our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. On behalf of my co-host, Quentin Allen, and our special guest, Jacob, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. 